Um, we are in the uh, Gospel of Luke. We're continuing today in chapter 3. We're going to finish the chapter. Uh, so if you have your Bibles with you, uh, please open them to chapter 3. We're going to begin in verse 21. And uh, I'll note that we have some Bibles up front. If you don't have one with you, it'd be great if you have one. I also would note, yes, we have a few left over, that we have some of these um, uh, sheets here. We have one left, one lucky winner, uh, for you to be able to take notes. And I want to highlight something on the back for you this morning where it says, number one, what stood out for you from today's message? Not was what was really good about it, okay? But what stood out? How did the Holy Spirit speak to you? Secondly, what didn't you understand or what questions came to mind? And thirdly, how did the Holy Spirit speak to you and convict you today? So that's important. And then you can bring that to Missional Community Group this week, and that's, that's what we dig into and we talk together. I'll also point this as a preface to going into the message today, besides the fact that the podcasts are right there, uh, that you can listen to if you miss a message, and you can subscribe to that on iTunes and listen with us. But did you notice this morning, and it was just in a side note that came to me before I read and preface, that we were singing this morning to the Holy Spirit? Did you notice that? I mean, one song was literally called Holy Spirit, right? And, 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 but in a number of cases, we were singing to the Holy Spirit. I just want to make this point because it's important. Um, there are people who believe you shouldn't be doing that, that, that you should not pray to the Holy Spirit and you should not sing to the Holy Spirit. Um, this community, more than any community that I've been part of in a long time when it comes to churches, needs to be more unified, I would suggest. I really would. We are working towards that. The Holy Spirit is a person. <laughs> He is God, and it's totally okay to pray and to sing to the Holy Spirit of God. In fact, what I think you're going to see in the passage, and this is what reminded me of it, that everything that Luke does from this point on, but he's been doing it from the beginning, is he's showing how basically enamored and in love he personally is with the Holy Spirit. Now, of course, he loves Jesus, and he's writing his gospel, the good news about Jesus, but The Holy Spirit is the one who's impacted his life, and we're going to see today it's the Holy Spirit who empowers and anoints Jesus for the work of ministry. So just a little aside there. It's important. Let's read. Beginning in chapter 3 and verse 21. It's a long passage today. I'm going to read it. A lot of names you could applaud at the end if you think I actually pronounced them well. I'm just going to go for it, okay? Because there's a lot of interesting names here. Starts off in verse 21. Now, when all the people were baptized... And when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him bodily in form, like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased. Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as it was supposed, of Joseph, the son of Heli, the son of Mathat, the son of Levi, the son of Melchi, the son of Janai, the son of Joseph, the son of Mattathias, the son of Amos, the son of Nahum, the son of Esli, the son of Nagai, the son of Math, the son of Mattathias, the son of Semyon, the son of Josech, the son of Joda, not Yoda, Joda, the son of Jonan, the son of Reza, the son of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the son of Neri, the son of Melchi, the son of Adai, the son of Kosam, the son of Almadan, the son of Ur, the son of Joshua, the son of Eliezer, the son of Joram, the son of Mathat, the son of Levi, the son of Simeon, the son of Judah, the son of Joseph, the son of Jonan, the son of Eliakim, the son of Meliah, the son of Mena, the son of Matha, the son of Nathan, the son of 
David. The son of Jesse, the son of Obed, the son of Boaz, the son of Salah, the son of Nashon, the son of Amimadad, the son of Admin, the son of Arni, the son of Ezron, the son of Perez, the son of Judah, the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, the son of Terah, the son of Nahor, the son of Zerug, the son of Rhea, the son of Peleg, the son of Eber, and the son of Shelah, and the son of Canaan, the son of Arphasad, the son of Shem, and the son of Noah, the son of Lamech, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahalalel, the son of Canaan, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, thank you for every word of your word that's been recorded. Holy Spirit, we pray today that you would illuminate our hearts and our minds, that you would cut through the the week, the day, our our own stuff, our own struggles. We pray today that you would show us Jesus. You would show us this beautiful story of his baptism, what it means to us in this world today, the beautiful story of his genealogy, what it means for us today. Oh, Father, I just pray that you would bless us in this time. I thank you so much for his word, and I pray these things in Jesus' worthy name. Amen. So that's interesting, isn't it? We're going to get to some of this, most of this today, but it's interesting. Two passages, they seem completely unrelated, you would think. One's about the baptism of Jesus, very short, two verses, right, that Luke records after all we saw last week about John the Baptist, and then there's this genealogy, like right after that. Why? Luke, why? Those two things together, one after the other. Well, Luke is, as we know in this letter so far, in this book so far, he's continuing uh, to give his good friend Theophilus. This is a personal letter, personal book that he's written to his good friend Theophilus, a fellow Greek, uh, previously pagan, Gentile, skeptic. And he's writing to him because he wants Theophilus and every one of us Uh, The majority of us in this room are Gentile. In other words, we didn't come from a Jewish background, so we came from the same background as Luke and his good friend Theophilus. He wants him to have certainty, certainty about the things that he's been taught about Jesus. We assume in this that Theophilus is already a believer, but we could also assume that maybe Luke's not sure because he goes to a lot of trouble throughout this whole book and, if you look at the beginning of Acts, writing that whole book for Theophilus as well personal books, two of them, the Moreau, that make the canon of our Scripture. But I think one thing that you're going to see, and we're going to see it today, is that all the way from chapter 1 to chapter 3, really what Luke is doing in those three chapters is making one singular point. Jesus is God. Jesus is God. All of the miracles… Angels speaking to Zechariah, to Mary, virgin births, all of this. <laughs> Shepherds coming, watching, following a star. Miracles. Jesus is God. That's the point. John the Baptist's life, everything is aiming towards that. So here's your sermon title for today for those of you who are taking notes. It's the baptism of Jesus, clearly. That's the most important aspect that we need to look at today. I want to show you three things. Sounds like more, but it's really thing. Three, who, pardon me, why, who, when, and how. Why be baptized? Who should be baptized? 
and when and how you should be baptized. So look at the first two verses again, the baptism of Jesus with me in chapter 3, verses 21 to 22. It says this, now, when all the people were baptized, all those who were coming out to John by the Jordan, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened and the Holy Spirit descended on Him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. So this is actually the conclusion to the text that we were in last week, and some of you may have wondered, well, why didn't we keep going? Well, because I I honestly believe, A, we need to spend a lot more time on this, and B, this passage and the genealogy are attached for some interesting reasons. We should see from the context, however, that in the days that John the Baptist is calling people out into the wilderness, proclaiming and preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, and calling them as they're walking towards him, you brood of vipers, (laughs) you snakes, you serpents, and we went through all that last week. If you want to get into that, you can listen to the podcast, but that's what he's doing. While he's doing all these things, we need to see this. Jesus is there. Jesus is there watching and hearing. It might be one of the reasons, all I think as we saw last week, it's more than that, but why later in the Gospel of Matthew it's recorded that Jesus often calls people, you brood of vipers. That's the same language that Jesus uses. And so, interestingly, though, that we see in Luke's very brief account that after Jesus comes out of the waters of baptism, what's he doing? He's praying. He's praying. It's, it's awesome, awesome when, whenever we baptize somebody, we baptized a few people this year, that uh, afterwards we sing a hymn and we also pray. But we usually pray before they're baptized, right? And, and that's so that we make sure we bring them out of the water. But no, really, we, we pray before, then they get baptized. But Jesus is praying after. After. Then the heavens are opened. The person of the Holy Spirit, the person of the Holy Spirit descends in a bodily form of that of a dove onto Jesus. And then we hear the voice of the Father audibly saying, you are my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. This This is a remarkable event. I'm sure you know that. But before we get to what happened and why, let's ask the obvious question that we've been asking a few times already. Who told Luke this? Who told Luke, who never met Jesus, right? Who told him that this took place? Who told Luke what happened on this specific day? Who told Luke that, quote, the heavens opened and there was a voice and there was this dove? Who told him this? This is important because, you see, as Christians, there are often people who read this and they go, see, fairy tale. I mean, come on. Like, really? I mean, how, how this guy made this up, right? He wasn't there. He's, well, how? So we need to answer this question. Well, the answer to this question is basically many of the disciples of Jesus, or probably John the Baptist, became disciples of Jesus. That's first. That's important for us to know. In fact, as we've already mentioned before, Luke is also the only one who records the events of Acts 1 and Acts 2. He's the only one who records it. None of the other apostles or um, the disciples of Jesus or those who write the letters afterwards record those events, but Luke And in chapter 1 of Acts, we see the last appearance of Jesus on earth. 
Remember that? He appears to his disciples. He tells them to wait in Jerusalem for the power of the Holy Spirit to come upon them because there's no point going out and trying to do the ministry that I've called you to until you've received that power. So wait. And then he gives them the geographic definition of the mission, right? In Jerusalem, in your own backyard, first of all, then to Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And then, boof, he's gone, right? He's gone for good physically on this earth. Well, it's at that point in time that Peter starts a conversation. Peter steps up as a leader, and he's going to really step up in Acts chapter 2 when he preaches the gospel, when the Holy Spirit comes upon them. But he steps up and he goes, guys, we have a problem. Um, Judas is dead. He's no longer an apostle, a capital A apostle. We need to fill his space. We need someone to fill the role of Judas. Now, why does he say that? Well, he quotes the Old Testament, which says that one will replace his number. That's interesting. So they have this exercise. But this is what Peter instructs them with. These are his words, what he instructs the apostles. Here's what we need to do. In Acts chapter 1, verses 21 and 22, he says this. So look at this. One of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, look at this, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. One of these men told Luke the details. He's recording this in Acts, and he's recording the words of Peter. One of those men could have been, of course, Peter. So we don't know if Peter was there on the day when Jesus was baptized, but somebody was. And he told them what's going on. It's remarkable what we see here. He must be someone who could be, look at this, a witness from the baptism of John until, again, look at this, the resurrection of Jesus. Now, if you study the Scripture and if you've been around the rock for a very long time, you know that we talk about the difference between capital A apostles and small a apostles, right? I mean, the word literally means sent one. So there are men and women in the New Testament that are sent ones. Barnabas is an apostle, but he's not one of the capital A apostles. Those throughout the New Testament are defined as people who knew Jesus in this way. From the baptism of John through his life, death, burial, and resurrection. Those are the people who knew Jesus during that time. So this is interesting because what we see here is all four Gospels. The Apostle John in his Gospel, he doesn't mention the angelic appearances of any of the birth story, but instead he starts with something else. But all four Gospels record the baptism. That's important for us to understand. This is how important it is. But John, he starts his apostle, uh, pardon me, his gospel very differently. He, he goes right, for the, the, right from the get-go. He's like, Jesus is God. <laughs> I'm just going to start with that, okay? And, and he goes back to before Genesis 1, and he begins with the words, in the beginning, which, of course, reminds us of Genesis 1, in the beginning. But he now wants to show us this, was the Word, the Logos. And the Word was with God, And most importantly, the Word was God. So before the foundation of the earth, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, Jesus is God. John's beginning with that. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. So John opens the prologue, which reminds us again of Genesis 1, telling us about the period before the Logos, the Word, who is Jesus, is with the Father in heaven. Then John moves on. 
right away pretty much. He goes on in verses 6 to 8 to tell us about this man sent from God whose name is John the Baptist. So he goes into Baptist's story this way. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness. An important word. It keeps coming up. To bear witness about the light that all may believe through him. He, John, was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. And then one of my favorite verses, I think most of you love this verse, verse 14, John, the apostle, rolls it together and says, and the Word, the Logos, who is God, became flesh. This is the birth of Jesus in one verse. Became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. John's gospel is awesome when it comes to praising Jesus. Well, he goes on in verses 34 to uh, 29 to 34, talking about what happens at the baptism of Jesus. It's remarkable. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said this, Behold, look at these words, the Lamb of God. Now, any Jewish person hearing these words in that day would be going, that's a sacrifice. That's the Lamb of God is the, the Messiah who's going to come. But what's with the sacrifice? What's that all about? Who takes away the sin of the world? This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. John was born first, just so we get that straight. So he knows that he's before the foundation of the world. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. Now, some people would say, whoa, whoa, John, he's your cousin. You grew up with him. You should know who he is. Yeah, that's true, but John's been in the wilderness 10 to 14 years, and nobody's seen him because he's wearing funny clothes and drink, you know, eating honey and locusts and all that stuff, and Jesus has gone from a 15, 16-year-old to a 30-year-old man. He doesn't recognize him is what that means. And then it says, and John bore witness. Look at this. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, so he's been given a prophecy that he should recognize this, he on whom you see, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And now John concludes, And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. John the Baptist is a believer. (laughs) Right here and right now. Although, several months later, he's going to go, hey, wait a second, are you the one? (laughs) Because he's waiting for Jesus to do what most of Israel expected him to do. So in Mark's gospel, it's interesting, from verses 9 to 13, uh, what's most interesting and telling of the baptism story in Mark's gospel is, number one, A, it's exactly the same as the other gospels, uh, as John's especially, in that Jesus came out to the Jordan River to be baptized by John by immersion, I want to mention that, as an adult at the age of 30. Matthew and Mark also highlight this. In Matthew chapter 3, verse 16, it says this, And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him. And Mark also records the opening of heaven and the presence of God the Father's voice. 
and the Holy Spirit descending onto Jesus. But interestingly, with the other Gospels, there's no genealogy. Not at this point, anyway. They skip mostly right to the next story that Luke's going to get to, that we will get to next week, which is about the wilderness and temptation. So we've got this genealogy bit. Matthew also records the story of John the Baptist and all the details that Luke and Mark record as well, but he adds something that is critically important. He adds something critically important. He answers really the most important question we need to ask and answer today, and that question is why? Why did Jesus submit himself to a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins when he was without sin? Why did Jesus do that? Why did he? He didn't need to repent. So now we can look at the conversation that happens between John and Jesus in Matthew chapter 3, verses 13 to 15. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. Now, John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered, let it be so, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. So what does this tell us? Well, all four gospel writers attest to and record the events surrounding Jesus' baptism. Clearly, it tells us this. A, it happened. (laughs) This baptism really, literally, historically took place. B, It's very important to the whole story of the life of Jesus, but also the life of the redemption and restoration of all things that God is about and and, and bringing into existence at this time. It's important to who Jesus is and why He came. And see, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all declare, and I think we've seen this so far, Jesus is God. Again, it's, it's the one single most important point. But that's the question, isn't it? I mean, come on, that's the question that everybody has to deal with today. Is Jesus really God? It's the question that every person must answer. It's the first main point of denial most people have as well, right? I mean, Jesus asked the question of His disciples that about two years into His ministry, He said, who do people say that I am? I mean, He had to ask them, and of course, they came up with all different you know, well, Elijah, some, you know, you're, you're a prophet or whatever. And then Jesus, of course, personalizes it and asks the most important question, but who do you say that I am? It's the question that everybody has to answer, and it's the one that most people want to deflect and pull away from. I've been asked to speak at uh, Quest University this coming week uh, to uh, answer this question. Why should I believe in God? In a philosophy and religion course, class at Quest, I get 30 minutes to answer that question. (laughs) Anybody want to take this from me? This cup? You know, like, would you like to try that one on for size? I'm actually looking forward to it. I'm really looking forward to it. I think it'll be very interesting to present the gospel, the truth of God's Word to people, to young men and women up at Quest, but also then 30 minutes of taking their questions. Can you just imagine what the questions are going to be? But I can guarantee you one of the questions is going to be, come on, there's no evidence that Jesus actually ever existed, isn't there? Not really a question, it's more like a statement, is it? That's what we're confronted with in our world today, and I understand that. So Luke records the simple facts, the shortest of all the accounts of Jesus' baptism, and so we must conclude that Luke wants to say to dear Theophilus, good for, easy for me to say, and us here today, one simple thing, Jesus is God. Is it starting, starting to sound a little repetitive? It's important. 
We've got we to really believe this and be able to take this to the world. Okay, let me, let me tackle the genealogy with you for a second before we actually get back to our outline. Trust me, we're going to get to this, but let's consider the genealogy. So, so what is Luke doing at this point, dropping this in after the baptism of Canada? He just drops in this genealogy. Why in the world are you doing this? What's the point? Well, like any passage, we could take, honestly, we could take actually a couple of weeks to go through that genealogy and study all the characters and the individuals and the linkages. It's, it's, it is amazing to look at some of the people that are recorded in there. Um, but here's the short version so that we get the context for today. First, Matthew, as you know, also records a genealogy. It's the beginning of the New Testament. Matthew's genealogy about Jesus before he gets to the birth of Jesus. He records a genealogy. And it's interesting, though, a quick comparison of the two would naturally cause someone to think, wait a second, you see, there we go. I might even get this question at Quest this week. Hey, just a second, those genealogies are different. Uh, the Bible contradicts itself right there. There you go. Well, a simple reading of it, yeah, you may come up with that conclusion. There are many different names in the two. There are many similar as well that appear, it appears that way. So what's going on? Really, what is going on when we look at the two genealogies? Well, there are many similarities to start. Matthew's genealogy begins with Abraham, starts with Abraham, and then goes all the way to David and finishes with Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who was called the Christ. And he does these interesting little divisions of 14 generations. It's kind of interesting what he does. But here's the point. Luke, every gospel, as you probably know, has a different point or a different perspective on who Jesus is. Matthew, to a Jewish audience, Matthew being a Jew, wants to present and make sure that people understand this about Jesus, which proves that He is God. He is the racial heir of Father Abraham. That is really important. And secondly, besides being the racial heir of Abraham, He is the rightful royal kingly heir of David. That's, in a nutshell, the whole point of Matthew's genealogy. Luke starts with these words. Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age. That's the main passage of Scripture, by the way, where we get the idea that Jesus was 30 when he started his ministry. But look what it also says. Being the son, brackets, as was supposed of Joseph. This is a big clue. (laughs) This is a big important point. Because, again, we know the birth story, right? Joseph is not the biological father of Jesus would have caused a little bit of, you know, gossip in the local town, to say the least. And so this is kind of a language about, you know, what we're talking about here, as it was supposed. Joseph is not his father. Luke is alluding to the reality that Joseph is not only Jesus' biological father, but again, that Jesus is God. Luke continues to make his case that Jesus is God by establishing this fact. Jesus was not born in sin. He was born by the Holy Spirit of God impregnating Mary. If he had been born by the seed of man, he would have been in sin from birth. Luke is establishing that case. Luke then traces his lineage back through David and Abraham, but he doesn't stop there. He traces his lineage all the way back to the first created man, Adam. That's the linkage. That's the important point. So what we have, scholars assert, is this. Two genealogies. Matthew traces Jesus' lineage through 
his earthly father, Joseph, and Luke through his earthly mother, Mary. No contradiction, but divine providence throughout the whole thing. That's why a study of the genealogies is so amazing. <laughs> there's, there's, I mean, we, we, I don't have time, but you can look at that and just say, God arranges it so that this, per, that son, Abraham, <laughs> David, Messiah. Through Mary and Joseph, different tribes, different situations, son of God. It's remarkable. It's truly, truly remarkable. Certainty, Theophilus. That's why I'm writing this. I want you to have certainty, brothers and sisters in Christ. Jesus is God. That's why this is written. So, let's now have a look at our outline point by point, and we'll conclude with these three points. Number one, why be baptized, right? So, let's start with the question that Matthew's text poses. Why did Jesus submit to baptism? And secondly, what does it mean for you and I today? So, if we again look at Matthew's text, uh, let me read it again um, with a bit of a Jewish accent, if you don't mind, okay? Because, you know, I, I used to do impersonations when I was younger, but, and we had Jewish people in our neighborhood. We loved them. We weren't making fun of them, okay? In Toronto, there's lots of Jewish people. We love them, but it's a little bit like, you're asking me to baptize you? Oy vey! Haven't you got this a little backwards, Jesus? I mean, this is the, this is the intonation of what John the Baptist is confused. Like, you know, I, I know that I need to acknowledge you as the Son of God when the Holy Spirit comes on you. The prophecy told me that, but I'm to baptize you? What's going on here? John the Baptist is right. Jesus does not need to be baptized because He has done nothing to repent from, and He never will. He has no sin. But then we hear Jesus' response. Let it be so now. Important word, now. Because this is the beginning of something very new. For thus it is, again, important word, fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. So what's going on here? Well, let's remember the basics of John's baptism so far, what we've learned. John was calling people out to a new baptism of repentance. Not the run-of-the-mill version that we, we again, looked at last week where people were just like Catholic confession, right? You, you, you go to the priest, you have your list, you, you give the confession, and, and you do your penance, and you're good. You know, your knees are a little sore from the marble altar, but you're good. Clean slate. You're free to go sin some more, make your list, and come and repent again. No. No, you're not, actually. And that's, so that's what's new about this baptism that John is bringing, and that's what he's trying to introduce because the baptism of the Holy Spirit that is to come is not like that at all. It's not like that at all. And so John's… He, anyway, so we, we looked this over, and, and this was the repentance that led to forgiveness that he's, he's, he's wanting to lead people toward of sins once and for all, preparing people for the baptism of the Holy Spirit. So these Jews also saw themselves as Abraham's children, and this, is, and this was the way that they repented. So not so with this new people that John was preparing them to be a part of, this new people being the children of God in Christ Jesus. So Jesus now walks into that situation, and John simply says, whoa, again, I need to baptize you, and you come to me, he says in Matthew 3.14. In other words, he, he makes it crystal clear that Jesus doesn't need this baptism. That's his point. 
He doesn't need to confess any sins, so why are you here, Jesus, is what he's asking him. Jesus gives a short answer that is so important. It's fantastic. He says, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting to fulfill all righteousness. Simply, it's the right thing to do. It's fitting. It's the right… Jesus is always doing the right thing. This had to be done. What is fitting? Well, fulfilling all righteousness is what's fitting. Jesus knew and saw His life as the fulfillment of all righteousness, right? In Matthew, the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, He goes, I didn't come to abolish the law and the prophets. I came to fulfill them. How? By being righteous in every possible and perfect way. And by the way… I can make you like that. I can make you like that. It's fitting is what he says. And the fact that participating in a baptism of repentance, even though he had no sin to repent of, is part of that. It shows that the righteousness he wanted to fulfill was the righteousness required not of himself, but of every sinful man and woman. So why was Jesus baptized? It was fitting It was the right thing to do to model the fulfillment of all righteousness. Well, are there other reasons why he was baptized? Yeah, there there are many, many reasons, but let me highlight just a few. First, and again, I think this is amazing and beautiful. Jesus was baptized, and Luke records it for this reason, as we've seen, to show us this. God. Not just that Jesus is God. But God Himself, this is one of the many times, but one of the highlight times in the Scripture where the God of the universe, triune God, the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are present at one time. And here's the deal. They're present here, not in the ether. They're present here on earth. Jesus physically, the Father through His voice, and the Holy Spirit represented as a dove resting on Christ. Secondly, Jesus was fulfilling all Scripture that foretold that He would be recognized publicly by the forerunner, John the Baptist. And so again, it's fitting. It's been prophesied. It's been foretold. This is, I got to show up, and this has to happen. Third, Jesus' baptism demonstrated His willingness to fully identify with you and with me. You can study all the other religions you want in the world, There is no point in any of the other religions with an all-powerful God that that God in any way, shape, or form identifies with His lowly creatures. (laughs) No. It doesn't happen. That's beautiful. He came to identify with you and I, with us, with sinners. Finally, this is true for you and I, as we will see, this event marks the start of Jesus' ministry. This event does. And it it does because of a very important reason. It's that big of an event. Jesus is physically present, as I said. All of these things have lined up. So what's going on here? The Holy Spirit, Jesus already has Him. He was full of the Holy Spirit from the womb. But the Holy Spirit is now descending upon Him for a very special purpose, and it is important to all of us as well, as we'll see, to anoint Him specially as the fully God and fully man to do the work that He's called to do. 
It's a special anointing of the Holy Spirit, a gifting of the Holy Spirit to send Him into the ministry that He's called to do at this point in time. Anointing, empowering, and leading of the Holy Spirit for the rest of His earthly life. From this point on, Luke records that continually. It's all about the Holy Spirit filling, the Holy Spirit power, and then Jesus goes and does it. We're going to see this next week in 4 verses 1 to 2a. It says this, and Jesus, look at this. This is after the genealogy, what we start with next week. And Jesus, look, full of the Holy Spirit, (laughs) full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit. Here, give me your hand. Give me your hand. Let me take you into the wilderness for your testing. For 40 days, being tempted by the devil. So, so why, why be baptized? Why should you and I be baptized is the question, I guess. And secondly, we've just discovered why Jesus was baptized. Well, for that, we need to skip over to the day when the Holy Spirit came in Acts chapter 2 and see what happens there. We need to see that. The day of Pentecost is the day, of course, you all know. We, we reviewed it a little bit last week. The Holy Spirit, Jesus promises, comes upon the disciples with power, right? There's flames of tongues of fire over their head, right? Holy Spirit and fire. They, they start speaking in tongues, known languages, and they're proclaiming the Word of God and proclaiming the glories of God, proclaiming the gospel. Good old Peter, right? The guy who denied him three times all of a sudden is the gospel preacher of all time. And he preaches to thousands of people. A pretty, pretty direct gospel. You're all sinners. We're all guilty. He preaches it really, really hard, beautifully, with power to the thousands that are present. And then we read in verses 37 and 38 of Acts chapter 2, now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? The Holy Spirit has already been working in their hearts. This is called the work of regeneration. He's already at work. Those who felt cut to the heart were convicted by the Holy Spirit. What shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive, look at this, the gift of the Holy Spirit. So, so why be baptized? I'm going to come back to these, this verse in a second, but why be baptized? Well, Jesus and the apostles command it. Right here we see it in effect. Peter is commanding it. This is what you do. You repent and then be baptized. So in other words, we'll get to that in just a second. You repent and be baptized. It's an act of obedience in the believer's life to follow Jesus. Jesus in Matthew 28, which we will conclude with today, He tells us to go into all the world and do what? Baptize people. It's a command of Christ as well. So let me ask you this question. It's important here today for all of you in this room. Have you been cut to the heart? personally? Has the Holy Spirit started that work in you, cut you to the heart because you've realized how fallen and broken and sinful you are and that Jesus died for you so that you could be forgiven and you could have new life in Him? And He could could completely, as a result of that, turn your life around? Repent and be baptized. That's the command of Scripture. Repent and be baptized. 
That's number one. Why be baptized? Number two, who should be baptized? This one's really simple, really kind of succinct, right? Well, from our studies, I mean, last week and this week, uh, we can put these basic facts and truths together. First, this is important, true repentance is the result of and results in true change, which is not done by us through our works or efforts, but by the Holy Spirit. The regeneration necessary that leads to true repentance and our faith in Christ is also a work of the Holy Spirit. So therefore, in every sense, there is nothing that we do except respond. There's a response required to acknowledge that you have the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit in you. You know it because you repent. You turn from your past life. You agree with God that I, I, I am a sinner, not was, but I am a sinner. I am imperfect, and I'm agreeing with Him. I'm having a change of mind about everything, about Him and about myself especially, and I'm turning towards Him. The result is we're obedient and we get baptized. So let me, let me repeat that one more time more succinctly for you to explain this. Who should get baptized? Everyone who has experienced the regeneration of the Holy Spirit, repented of their sins, confessed Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, should be baptized. That's who. Number three, this is important, when and how to be baptized. When and how. So I want to with all respect to other traditions, we're going to stay here with what we see so far in the Word. And this is one of the reasons why I encourage people so much, no matter what your traditions, is to come to our baptism classes. Because we go in for an hour and a half, I go into a much more detail about what baptism's about, other traditions, different things. And we just go by the Word here, by the way, at The Rock. We just, we open the Bible, we read what it says, we don't go by church traditions or, you know, certain confessions of faith. We don't do that. We, we go by the Bible, what it actually says in the Scripture. So what have we seen so far? Well, we see these things. John was a mature man when he started baptizing people. So he wasn't one of a young neophyte, you know, like just at a seminary. Or, or he, you know, he was a grown man, a mature man when he began baptizing. But we also saw in Luke chapters 1 through 3 this about Jesus. At eight days of age, his mother and father brought him to the temple to be A, circumcised, B, dedicated. That's why they brought him to the temple. Then at 12 years of age, the only recording of his life between 8 days and 30, written by Luke again, he's in the temple. Why? He's in the temple because he's being prepared for his bar mitzvah when he's 13. So he's being prepared to become an adult male at that time. Nothing else spiritually. He's producing, going to become an adult male Jewish boy who's now going to be given works of service in the local synagogue and church. That's what we've seen so far. So the evidence is also rather clear that those who came out to John's baptism were, from the Scripture itself, mature men and women, who were fully aware of what they were doing. And especially we saw in Acts 2 this, we heard that they heard the gospel, were cut to the heart, regeneration beginning in them. They were then told to repent and be baptized. So again, look at this. They heard, they understood, and they were told they were told to repent and be baptized. Not their parents were told. <laughs> they were told to repent and be baptized. So finally, there's the how. 
it was and it always is in Scripture by immersion, right? It's fully immersed in water, which we call water baptism. I'm going to pause there just for a second. I don't have this in my notes. Just to make this point. I'll get to it at the end, actually. It's about the mission, not the model. <laughs> okay, we need to be very careful here. We're not a legalistic church. Now, we follow the Scripture. We try to stick straight with what the Scripture teaches about every aspect of who we are as men and women, the church, all the functions, all the sacraments, all the rest of it. People get bent out of shape about these things, but the Scripture is pretty clear. It's about water baptism. So how do we know that? Well, we've already seen it in Matthew 3, 16, I believe it is. Yes. And when Jesus was baptized, so Jesus is our model, but of course in Acts 2 it's the same thing. Immediately he went up from the water. He's coming up out of the water, right? And the heavens were open to him. I mean, you can read Jewish historians, secular historians from this age and day when baptism was taking place, and they can confirm for you that the Jordan was chosen because of its easy slopes and accessibility, and the baptisms were by full immersion under the water and back out. I mean, for the Christian, this is the model. This is how we understand um, our death, burial, and resurrection in Christ. We're following Him in His death, burial, and resurrection, and when I'm baptized and I go into the water and under the water, the old Glen is left in there, hopefully, and the one who comes out is this new creation in Christ. It's, 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 it's obedience, but it's also a wonderful testimony to the world and to everyone who is there. And so, the other thing that I think we need to see here is that the word in the Greek, by the way, for baptism, anyone know what that word is? Well, it's baptizio. <laughs> it's really simple, right? What does it mean? Immersion. That's literally what the word means in Greek, is to immerse. So, where does that leave you? Where does that leave you in this room today? Do you need to be baptized? Be careful. <laughs> be careful. Is the Holy Spirit calling you to be baptized? Has the Holy Spirit already done the work of regeneration in your heart and led you to repentance? Be baptized. Don't wait. Don't hesitate. And for you as a believer here today, what should you, take, what should you and I take from this? Some of you here are your believers. You're going, Glenn, excellent. You've covered all the subjects really, really well. Good for you, right? But what do I take away from this? Like, really, and that's kind of a selfish way to look at things, but I understand. I understand exactly what you're doing, and I agree with you. What do we take from this today? Is it merely instructions that you could share with someone else about why, who, when, how, and where? Sure. It's much more than that. I love this. It's much more than that. Again, you guys all know these verses. Matthew 28, 19 to 20. Jesus is giving the great commission to His disciples, which is you and me if we're in Christ, and He says, go therefore, make disciples, that's the key job description, of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, and behold, I'm with you always and to the end of the age. Sadly, this is what I was alluding to a minute ago, what you often see in the church are those who get all hung up on the model. It's not just baptism. It's communion. It's the liturgy of the church. It's what songs we can or can't sing. Like we get all hung up on the model, the why, the who, the when, the how, the where, surrounding baptism, for example, which we're talking about today, and we forget about the mission. 
When was the last time you heard a small group debate the why, the who, the when, the where, and how of the mission? Of this. That's worthy of debate, right? Here's here's a thought I have for you. John the Baptist is more than the forerunner of Jesus Christ. His life and story is more than teaching us just about baptism. He's a model for you and for me on how to lead someone to Jesus Christ. That's the best thing about him. That's the most powerful thing, I think, that we can see about John the Baptist. He is a model for you and I. See, listen, you don't become a discipler of a person the, the day after they've come to the cross of Jesus, knelt, and confessed Jesus Christ as Lord. That's what the church, most of the churches that you've been part of, but I was part of most of our lives. Maybe you, you've all been part of healthier churches than my, my, myself. But it's been like, oh, yeah, once you become a Christian, then, then you get on into one-on-one discipleship with them. Tell that to the apostles who Jesus called in the first year of his ministry, hey, you two dudes, follow me. He started discipling them right there. The cross was three years out. (laughs) Maybe, listen, maybe think about it this way. Maybe for those people who in your lives, when you take the eyes off yourself and your own circumstances and start looking around your neighborhood and around other people, maybe what you need to be doing and I need to be doing is calling them to the Jordan, telling them that there is a way for them to have forgiveness teaching them about Jesus and what He did for you and what He can do for them, leading them to seek repentance, and then watching the Holy Spirit do this remarkable work of regeneration in their hearts. Have you ever seen that personally? Have you ever seen that? Have you ever experienced that? It's the best thing in the world to be at the baptism of another person, and you're not taking credit for it, but you're standing back and going, I was part of that. Be a forerunner. Be a forerunner. Pray with me, would you?